In 2014, Pomona SWAT officer Sean Diamond was fatally shot by David Martinez during a raid on the Martinez family home. According to law enforcement, the act was murder. According to Martinez, it was self-defense. From Crime Story Media and E1 Entertainment, this is Night Raid. I'm your host, Molly Miller, and this week we're covering the defense's case in the trial of David Martinez, including illuminating details about the timeline of the raid, new information about the SWAT team's tactics, and a shocking 911 call that may support David's claim of self-defense. So there was seven to ten seconds between the time that Officer Hess said, make the announcement, and Officer Hess said, breach the front door, correct? Yes, sir. So do you think that that's a reasonable amount of time for people who are sleeping in bedrooms throughout the house to come up to the front door and answer the door? Stick around for the fifth installment of Night Raid after this. In the beginning, I said that this case was about less than 60 seconds in the dark. The moments leading up to the shooting of Sean Diamond. Remember, there are no recordings of the SWAT raid. No body cams, no security footage. In order to sway the jury, the prosecution and the defense had to vividly render their version of events and guide the panelists through each and every second. They had to persuade the jury of what to see in the dark. Deputy District Attorneys Jack Garden and Michael Blake presented a scene of order and intention a highly professional SWAT operation met by a gang member who deliberately shot to kill a cop. While the prosecution's depiction focused on the experience outside the Martinez home, the defense took the jury inside the Martinez residence. Brady Sullivan led the jury past the metal screen door and the wooden front door, through the entryway, occupied by pairs of sneakers, past the china cabinet, beyond the living room where Arturo, Guadalupe, and Brenda rested on blankets, then through the hallway, adorned by a picture of Pope Francis, and finally, into the bedroom where Sandra and David slept. Sullivan put the jury in David's shoes and presented them with the 30 seconds critical to this case. He argued that in those moments, David did not experience order or intent, but rather chaos and terror. The following statement and all testimony in this episode will be portrayed by actors reading excerpts from the court's official transcript. Some excerpts are edited for time and clarity. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a concept called the perfect storm. It's become very popular in our culture after there was a movie called The Perfect Storm and a book called The Perfect Storm. And what that concept of The Perfect Storm captured is that sometimes in life, a series of unexpected, unanticipated events combine, come together, and they result in a tragedy. In the movie and the book, a boat, a fishing boat, gets caught up in a very unusual and bizarre series of weather events, storms, and hurricanes that combine unexpectedly to happen at just a moment when the boat was returning from a fishing expedition. And the boat is sunk. And all the fishermen die because they could not have foreseen this unusual event. Ladies and gentlemen, you're going to see in this case that a series of unusual and unexpected events 
came together on October 28, 2014, and the result of that unanticipated series of events was that when David Martinez came out of his bedroom and heard unknown people breaking into his house at 4 a.m. in the morning with his parents and sisters sleeping in the living room, that he acted to defend his family with the weapon that he had in his house for self-defense. And when he acted to defend his family against unknown perpetrators breaking into the front door, pointing weapons at his family, he did so reasonably and legally. Today, we are unpacking Brady Sullivan's story about what happened in those 30 seconds in the dark. The narrative that he told the jury focused on the perspective of individuals inside the Martinez home, specifically what Sandra, David Jr., and David experienced during the raid. Additionally, Sullivan questioned the tactics of the SWAT team itself, alleging that the lead officers made mistakes that caused confusion and chaos during the operation. In our last episode, we asked, if we were sitting in the jury box, would we believe the prosecution's story that in those 30 seconds, David Martinez knowingly and with malice murdered Officer Diamond? Today, we're asking, if we were sitting in the jury box, would we believe the story that David Martinez acted in lawful self-defense? I'm Molly Miller, and this is Night Raid. As the prosecution presented their case, Brady Sullivan sat beside David Martinez. He gave sharp, encouraging nods, the occasional pat on the back. After four and a half years... The two men respected each other. The past was forgotten. It didn't matter that in the early days they had engaged in heated arguments about the case. It didn't matter that the Martinez family had once fired Brady. He was back, and poised with binders full of case documents, every page annotated and analyzed. He was prepared, and he was passionate. After over 30 years in the public defender's office, Brady had decided that this would be his last case before retirement. This was his last chance to fight for a client that he believed to be innocent. In our last episode, we outlined the key questions that the jury had to consider in determining their verdict. One of those questions was, did they believe that David heard the police announce themselves? To address this issue, the prosecution called dozens of witnesses, SWAT officers, detectives, and even David's parents, Arturo and Guadalupe Martinez. But besides David, there were two witnesses inside the Martinez home that the prosecution did not ask about the officers' announcements. The first was David's common-law wife, Sandra Roman. In the hours following the Pomona SWAT raid on the Martinez home, Sandra spoke to detectives Jeff Cochran and Frederick Morse. You might recognize the initial part of the recording from our first episode. So I'm laying down, I'm, you know, on my stomach laying down, and this dog just starts going wild, and I just hear David run out the room, and I'm like, what the hell's going on? He's, it's just the dog's barking. Remember that the Martinez family had four dogs, two chihuahuas that slept in the laundry room by the kitchen, and a rat terrier and a German shepherd that were kept in the backyard. 
and then I hear this pounding and this boom and just pounding and pounding so I get up and I'm like the hell's going on I don't hear nothing and I just hear David dad dad that's my dad what are you doing officer and that's when he said officer I was like what the hell's going on Later in the interview, the detectives followed up on the timeline of what Sandra heard during the raid. But you said you heard him say, officer. When I'm already, that's already after the, all that, after the pounding, after I hear him Did say Did you hear that, a bang? Yeah, I'm he- you're just hearing bang, bang, boom, boom. Sandra heard David say, officer, after all the banging implicitly meaning after the officers had breached the door, after David had already fired his weapon, and after David observed Arturo's wound and shouted in concern for his father. At trial, Brady Sullivan expanded on questions that Sandra was asked in the 2014 interview and prompted her to clarify whether or not she ever heard police announcements at all. At any point that night, did you ever hear anyone identifying themselves as Pomona Police Department? No. Did you ever hear anybody say, search warrant? No. Did you ever hear anybody say, open the door? No. Arturo and Guadalupe heard the officers' announcements, but they were sleeping in the living room, right by the front door. Sandra and David's bedroom was farther away, as was the bedroom of the one other person who could offer testimony about what they experienced on the night of the raid. And that person wasn't even on the prosecution's witness list. David and Sandra's son, David Jr. At the time of the raid, David Jr. was 10 years old. He slept in a twin bed under a Minecraft poster. A nightlight glowed on his bedside table. By the time of the trial, David Jr. was 14 years old. Brady Sullivan called him to testify about the night that changed everything. The night that led to his father being charged with murder. Now, you recall that something very unusual happened at your house on October 28, 2014, right? Yes. So, I want to take you back to earlier that day. Do you recall being asleep and being awakened at some point in the middle of the night? Yes. Do you remember what it was that woke you up? It was a loud banging that woke me up. Now, actually, before I ask any more questions about this, at the end of the day on October 28, 2014, did you were you taken to a police station? Yes. Did you spend the entire day at the police station that day? Yes. At some point at the end of the day, were you interviewed by detectives from the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department? Yes. In the hours after the SWAT operation, David Jr. was held at the Temple City Sheriff's Station in a different room than his mother. The separation of witnesses is common practice in police investigation. It's important to keep witnesses apart to make sure they don't influence each other's recollection of events. So while David Jr.'s mother was in the room during the interview, He didn't have time to speak to her beforehand. The statements that David Jr. made to the detectives were all his own. This is the actual recording of David Jr.'s interview with Detective Jeff Cochran of the LASD. Okay, so you went to bed about 10 last night. And and you're in that that room by yourself? You get the whole room to yourself? Wow, that's cool. And uh, did you wake up at some point in the morning? 
Mm, wait, when you guys came. Okay, what what uh, what woke you up? The banging on the door. Okay, so you heard banging on the door? Did you hear anyone yelling anything? Yeah, I heard my dad yelling, get down on the ground. Okay, uh, you heard your dad yelling that? You see, you recognize your dad's voice when he yelled? Okay, who do you think he was talking to? All of us. Okay. And uh, what what happens next? Um, I was on the I was on the floor in your I room. Was, yeah, I was on the floor carrying my sister, and then every um, the police people told me to go outside and sit down on like the sidewalk. Okay. Well, let's go let's go back before that. Okay. Let's go back when you hear banging on the door. Okay. Um, do you hear anyone besides your dad say anything? No, you didn't hear anything? <clears throat> didn't hear anyone yelling or anything? No, I just heard my dad. You just heard your dad. Okay, did, did, uh, um, what did you think was happening when someone's banging on the door? I didn't, I didn't know what was going on. I, I didn't even know um, it was you guys. Brady Sullivan argued that if David Jr. didn't hear the police announcements, then it was probable or at least possible, that his father didn't hear them either. In 2014, David Jr. told the LASD detectives that he didn't know who was at the door or what was going on. And in 2019, he told the jury the same thing. After you heard the banging sound, right, you have described these banging sounds, okay? Did you ever hear anybody identifying themselves or who was making the sounds? No, I didn't. Did you have any knowledge that it was the police that was making those banging sounds? No. So the first knowledge you had of the police being involved at all was when you saw them, the SWAT officers, coming into your bedroom. Is that correct? Yes. Sandra and David Jr. testified that they didn't hear the officers' announcements from the bedrooms where they were sleeping. Arturo and Guadalupe also experienced initial confusion, and they were resting right next to the front door. The confounding scene raises two very simple questions. What was the SWAT team's plan? And did they execute it properly? The Friday before the SWAT operation, Corporal Scott Hess and Officer Sean Diamond scouted the Martinez home. They drove by and checked for signs of kids watched for dogs. They noted the location of fences and gates. Then, taking those factors into consideration, they wrote up an operation plan that included a tactical description of the mission. That plan was then approved by Sergeant Steve Congleton. Here's the actual text from the operation plan, read by an actor. Upon a tactical approach to the location, Corporal Hess and Reserve Officer Sevensend will loudly and clearly identify the team as law enforcement while simultaneously demanding entry into the location for search warrant service. Additionally, while this is going on, other SWAT personnel will establish a perimeter around the location. If the residents inside the location comply with our demands, SWAT personnel will order all occupants out of the residence prior to rendering the location secure. If the residents refuse to comply with our demands, the breaching team will breach the front security screen and the interior front door. At this time, Corporal Hess will access the residence's entryway to determine if the entry team will physically make entry into the location. 
Upon Corporal Hess's assessment, and if there is physically enough room for operators to maneuver, the entry team will make a limited penetration in the residence's front room. Upon a positive and limited penetration into the residence, all occupants will be ordered out prior to rendering the remaining portion of the residence secure. There are two aspects of this operation that offer crucial context to David's reaction. The first has to do with the nature of the plan itself, and the second has to do with how it was physically carried out. As for the plan itself, this procedure is often described by law enforcement professionals as a dynamic entry or dynamic breach with a limited penetration of the residence. So what does that mean exactly? So long story short, dynamic entry is when you force entry and then you move through fairly quickly. That's Thor Eels, the executive director of the National Tactical Officer Association, the organization that provides SWAT leadership training and operations standards for law enforcement agencies. To be clear, Pomona SWAT's plan did not entail a full dynamic entry. The mission statement suggests that the officers wouldn't rapidly enter the home immediately after the breach. But that part of the operation never happened because it was interrupted by the shot at the door. So, we're going to focus on that first part, the forced entry. While many of the highly publicized SWAT raid fatalities are civilians, it's obvious, given our case, that dynamic entry also poses a threat to the SWAT operatives. I asked Thor if dynamic entry was really worth risking the life of an officer. Well, it's all dependent on what your objective is. Mm-hmm. And so we'll do dynamic entry in hostage rescue. The suspect's not coming out. And for whatever reason, we have intelligence now that if we don't make this entry, innocent people are going to die. So that makes it worth it. Outside of hostage rescue, your question, it's the question that we ourselves have asked and tried to give answers to within our own subspecialty in saying, It probably ought to be a last resort in that you've gone through this threat assessment, this risk mitigation protocol, and at the end of it, it's not like it's your greatest choice, but it's the least risky of all these bad choices. And that's ultimately what should take place. I would be less than honest with you if I tried to get you to believe that it takes place that way. It doesn't. There are still agencies that engage in what we call dope rescue. Mm -hmm. You know, they're trying to get evidence. I don't care how critical you think that evidence is. It's not worth a human life. When the Pomona SWAT team used a forced entry on the Martinez home, they were looking for evidence, a stockpile of guns that they believed the Mongols planned to use in retaliation against the Jizer tribe. Thor became the executive director of the NTOA in 2017, three years after the death of Officer Sean Diamond. But leaders in the organization have advised caution regarding dynamic entry for years. Given the danger of forced entry, I asked Thor about alternative ways to serve a high-risk warrant. Uh, Other alternatives are, as I said, we'll do the takedown of ways, meaning we're not going anywhere near the structure until we have arrested the primary and secondary uh, targets in a a ruse traffic stop or something else. You know, wait until they get ready to go to the corner market to get a gallon of milk. Mm -hmm. We'll do what's called contain and call out, 
-hmm. which means we'll surround it and we'll shoot a phone call in and we'll say, we have a search warrant for your residence. You need to come out to us uh, and you need to do so in the next five minutes. And if you do so, and you do with your hands in plain view, we can guarantee your safety. And so that's a contained and call out. It works pretty effectively. Again, it mitigates risk because there's still no confrontation. So remember I said time and distance. So I've allowed maximum distance, which means we have plenty of time to evaluate any threat that you may create. And then we can make a a good decision on what is an appropriate response to that. In this case, there was a confrontation, a fatal one, despite the fact that the Pomona SWAT team had the personnel and the PA system on the Bearcat to perform a contain and call out. This, of course, raises the question of whether the unfulfilled expectation of seizing a stockpile of weapons was worth the risk of dynamic entry. The jurors in the Martinez trial were not presented with this question. They were, however, left to sort out the second aspect of the SWAT team's plan, how it was carried out. More specifically, did the SWAT operation give David Martinez enough time to evaluate the potential threat at his door? Over the last couple of years, especially after the officer-involved killing of Breonna Taylor in Kentucky, we've heard a lot about no-knock raids. But this operation wasn't a no-knock raid. It was a knock-and-announce raid, also known as knock-and-notice. According to California Penal Code 1531, the officers had to knock on the target door and announce their presence, giving the occupants time to comply. Time to potentially open the door themselves before the officers forced entry. That's why the time between the announcements and the breaching of the door was critical to David's case. I've stated before that the whole operation took less than 60 seconds. That estimate comes from Sergeant Steve Congleton, the SWAT team commander the night of the raid. During the operation, Congleton was stationed in his vehicle about three houses away from the Martinez residence. Here's Congleton testifying at trial under cross-examination by Brady Sullivan, as read from transcripts by actors. Okay, after you set up in your car, you saw the SWAT team unload from their vehicles and to begin to walk down in formation towards the target house, right? Yes. So at some point, you lost sight of them, right? Yes. At some point after they disappeared, you heard on the radio something along the lines of, man down, man down. I did. Now, from the time they began to approach the location from where you were at until that radio call came through, man down, man down, it was less than 30 seconds, correct? I would say it was not less than 30 seconds. Isn't it true when you were interviewed by the detectives, you told them that it was within 30 seconds from the time that the officers began to approach the location until you heard that call, correct? Correct. It seemed like it happened really quick, right? Yes. And you were surprised at how quickly the call came in, right? Yes. According to Sergeant Congleton, it was 30 seconds from the SWAT team unloading their vehicles to the call for a medic. In those 30 seconds, the officers walked to the location, took their positions, made announcements, breached the metal security door, heard a shot, 
saw Sean Diamond collapse and called man down on the radio. If the operatives rushed their announcements or if the announcements were drowned out by some other noise, then it's possible that David didn't hear the police from the bedroom where he and Sandra slept. So just how long did announcements last before the breach? Here's part of Corporal Scott Hess's actual interview with LASD detectives Troy Ewing and David Gunner in the hours after the shooting. The police have continued announcements, identified ourselves repeatedly, loudly, clearly, um, demanded entry. Uh, Officer Dave Sevenson said the same thing, um, provided PC 1531, uh, fairly and loudly, repeatedly. And after uh, uh, what seemed to be a, a very reasonable amount of time for me, for somebody in the, that side of the house to come to the front door, we were getting no response. Uh, as we did not get a response, uh, Officer Aguiar poked, if you will, poked a hole in the mesh screen to, uh, in an effort to facilitate the, um, using a punching pole uh, to remove that screen. At that time, the Officer Aguiar, Corporal Aguiar, punched the screen. Um, Officer Diamond then placed the hook of the punching pole into that hole. Uh, this entire time, we are still continuing to uh, provide PC-1531 and identify And how much time do you think has gone by being up on that porch? We're all going real quick. Yeah, sir. it does. Uh, <laughs> I used to work narco and um, knock and notice in like five seconds. Oh, no. we, we tape our knock and notice. I, I, I know. I work with you guys a lot and um, the Sheriff's Department and uh, yeah, the videotaping and the knocking and the yeah. taping and yeah. uh, audio recordings. Uh, I would say at least a solid, I guess. 50 seconds seemed like. According to Corporal Hess, it was about 15 seconds from the time announcements began to part of the way through the breach. He said it felt, quote, real quick. It's an imprecise time frame. During the trial, Brady Sullivan was on a mission to isolate the announcements themselves, the exact seconds that the Martinez family members were given to open the door peacefully. For how many seconds were the officers' voices the only thing they heard in the night? When Officer Rick Aguiar took the stand, Brady Sullivan was dead set on finding the answer. You were assigned to execute a search warrant at this location, right? Yes, sir. It was what we call a knock-notice search warrant, right? Do you know what that means? No. You don't know what a knock-notice search warrant is? No, sir. Well, you've used the word 1531. What does that stand for? What does that number mean to you? As members of the SWAT team, we don't use that type of jargon, sir. You don't use the number? We use 1531, but we don't call it a knock and notice search warrant or any of that. All right. Well, are you aware that 1531 refers to a section of the penal code that requires knock and notice for a search warrant? Yes, sir, I do. Let me finish my question, okay? Okay. You're now aware that 1531, which is another word that you use to refer to the announcement that refers to a legal penal code requirement that the police give the occupants of a house notice that they are there to serve a search warrant and demanding entry, right? Yes, sir. And part of the knock notice requirement that you learned about now, right? Sure. Is that the occupants of the house be given a reasonable opportunity to comply with the demands of the police who are serving the warrant, right? Yes, sir. So from the time that the announcement started until Officer Hess gave the order to breach, 
How long was that? I believe it was a couple minutes, sir. A couple minutes? One to two minutes. This is an important point, right? Would you agree with that? I would agree. Isn't it true when you testified at the preliminary hearing, you were asked this very question, how long a period of time between when the announcement started and when the order to breach came? Do you recall being asked that question? I I do not, sir. Okay. Would it refresh your recollection if I showed you your testimony from the preliminary hearing? Yes. Brady Sullivan hands Officer Aguiar a transcript of his testimony at the preliminary hearing for review. Now, in fact, you were asked at the preliminary hearing the question, how long a period of time between the beginning of the announcements and the order to breach, right? Now that you refresh my memory, yes, sir. In fact, when you were asked that question, you said seven to 10 seconds, right? Yes, sir. So in fact, Was there seven to 10 seconds between the time that the announcement started and Officer Hess gave the order to breach? Yes or no? Was it seven to 10 seconds? I don't recall, sir. Well, that is what you testified to in this courthouse under oath, correct? Yes, sir. So there was seven to 10 seconds between the time that Officer Hess said, make the announcement and Officer Hess said, breach the front door, correct? Yes, sir. So do you think that that's a reasonable amount of time for people who are sleeping in bedrooms throughout the house to come up to the front door and answer the door? Objection. Speculation. Sustained. According to Rick Aguiar, it was 7 to 10 seconds from the order to give announcements to the order to breach the door. So is 7 to 10 seconds long enough? Legally, what is enough time? I asked Thor Eels. The legal standard is, quote unquote, reasonable period of time. That's it. Well, what determines reasonableness? Well, the size of the property, Mm -hmm. the time of the day the warrant's being served, the mobility of the person who's the focus of attention, all three of those come into account, and what is it that you're there for? Mm -hmm. Is it destructible or indestructible evidence? So those are those are the the primary uh, considerations that the courts are going to look at to determine whether Thor assessed reasonableness appropriately or reasonably. Some of what Thor says sounds, well, reasonable. But if you distill everything he's saying down to its central message, you're left with a pretty jarring fact. The decision on how long to announce is essentially up to the officers themselves. And that has some alarming implications. Here's Radley Balco, the police militarization expert you heard in our third installment, addressing the use of knock and announce. You know, the purpose of the knock and announce rule is to let the people inside come to the door and let the police in peacefully and avoid violence to their person, you know, destruction of their property. Um, if the police knock and announce, you know, as the battering ram hits the door, it's no different than a knock raid from the perspective of the people inside. So this is the other problem is that the courts, you know, will not give a no knock warrant. It'll be a knock, you know, a regular warrant, which requires a knock and announce. The police will just, you know, knock and announce as they break down the door and there's no penalty for that. Uh, and so it's basically a no-knock raid by another name. What this means for the Martinez case 
is that even if the officers made their announcements for less than 7 to 10 seconds, even if they began the announcements at the exact same time the rip ram hit the door, there would likely be no legal ramifications for the officers. And in the United States, that is entirely normal. But Brady Sullivan's job wasn't to hold the officers accountable for their execution of the raid on the Martinez home. Sullivan's aim was to show the jury how the SWAT team's actions, legally justified or not, contributed to a perfect storm in which his client mistook the operatives for gang members. The rapid pace of the operation wasn't the only mistake that Sullivan sought to illustrate for the jury. In Sullivan's narrative, the SWAT mission started to go wrong even before the officers arrived on the scene. During the trial, the defense attorney emphasized that the Pomona SWAT team was a part-time team. Unlike the full-time SWAT teams in the LASD or the LAPD, the Pomona operatives worked other primary assignments and engaged in SWAT missions in addition to their regular duties. This was typical for a small department, but it still meant the operatives had less experience compared to their big city counterparts. Additionally, Sullivan pointed out that the night of the SWAT raid on the Martinez home, the regular Pomona SWAT commander was out of town. As a result, Steve Congleton, who was typically the team lead, had to step up to take his place. But that meant that the role of team lead was vacant, so Scott Hess took the role of team lead. Sullivan argued that this was a part-time SWAT team outside their usual jurisdiction, operating with unseasoned personnel in two key leadership roles. According to Sullivan, this team went on to make several tactical errors. One potential error came to light on direct examination when Officer Jaime Martinez seemed to make an admission by a slip of the tongue. When you got to the front porch area of the house, did everybody on the entry team know the position to take at that point? Yes. What was the first step that occurred once everybody was set up? Once the SWAT team was set up, uh, at that point, I checked the doorknob to see if it was unlocked. At the same time, members of the SWAT team, to include myself, announced 1531 which is the knock and notice. Did anybody knock on the front door? There was a security door on the house, right? A white security door? Correct. Did anybody knock on that door? Uh, yes. Who was that? Rick Aguiar. Prior to the gunshot from inside the house, did you ever poke your gun into the house? Yes, I pointed my weapon into the house. Not point. Did you ever poke it into the house? No. I never poked my weapon into the house. Were you standing in the doorway? No, sir. Officer Jaime Martinez wasn't standing in the doorway, but he was standing on the small porch, feet, if not inches, from the threshold of the door. If he pointed his firearm into the house when the security door was open, that may explain what Guadalupe claims she saw when Arturo reached for the door. So they said open the door, police. Yes, yes, and then I tried to open the door and my husband he pulled me the clothes and he tried, he wanted to open the door. So he pulled you away from the Yes, yes. And when he, when he get the, the, the door, the, the thing for the door to open, mm -hmm. the police shoot the door with a bazooka, I don't know, the big rifle. And I hear the explosion real loud, real awful. Guadalupe thought she saw a bazooka 
But what she might have actually seen was Jaime Martinez's MP5 submachine gun. If Guadalupe saw the gun, David might have seen it as well. And if David saw the barrel of the gun pointed at his father and believed it belonged to an unknown intruder, then he may have been justified in firing his shotgun in self-defense. Which brings us back to David's perception of the events that occurred the night of the SWAT operation. Sullivan was determined to show the jury that in the 7 to 10 seconds prior to the officers breaching the door, that David did not hear or understand the officers' announcements. When Brady cross-examined Officer Jaime Martinez, he highlighted the ways in which the announcements themselves may have created confusion. So when you did the announcements, did you give them pretty much one right after the other? They were simultaneous. When you gave the announcements, you indicated that you said, what what were your words again? Police, search warrant, open the door. And then how many times did you say that? Approximately three to four times, if not more. And these words were spoken right after each other, right? Pomona police, search warrant, Pomona police, search warrant. I'm sure there was a few second pause in between. Were all of the officers saying the same thing, or did some officers use different words? I'm sure there was a variation of police, Pomona police, open the door, demanding entry, open the door. I don't think that everybody had the exact same verbiage down, but it was extremely, extremely similar. You have multiple officers yelling various commands, using some using different words, speaking over each other as they're yelling the announcements. Is that correct? Correct. Multiple voices overlapping, yelling different words. The testimony elicited by Brady Sullivan presented a very different version of the announcements than the questioning by the prosecution. Loud, clear, and deliberate was replaced by a cacophony, a din that would concern anyone. Maybe enough that they would call the police. Which brings us to one other witness to the events of that night. Besides the officers and the members of the Martinez family, there was Ingrid Sinisi. The following is a 911 call minutes after 4 a.m. on the night of the raid, placed by Sinisi, who lived across the street from the Martinez home. Hi, I live on and there's people like pounding at a house to open the door and they're yelling. But it's not my house, it's across the street like diagonally. There's been like a lot of yelling, it woke me up. There's people like yelling and pounding to get into the house. Yeah, that's gonna be the police over there. That's the police? Because I don't see any police coming. Yeah, that's Are you sure? Yeah, that's the police. Okay. I'm very sure, okay? All right, thank you. So besides David Jr., Sandra, and David, there was now one other person who claimed to be unaware that the noise outside the Martinez home was coming from police officers. And there was one last piece of evidence, Brady Sullivan would argue, that contributed to the cacophony and chaos of the critical 30 seconds at the heart of this case evidence specifically regarding the pounding that Ingrid and the Martinez family heard that night. According to Sullivan, the noise wasn't just from the entry team. 
It was more than the knock on the door or the punch of the rip ram. To present the jury with the source of this sound, Sullivan questioned team lead Scott Hess about the SWAT team's plan for surrounding the house. So you had a team of officers that were supposed to go past the gate into the backyard where the garage is at, right? In that general area to set up a perimeter. Right. Because you don't want to leave the back portion of the house where someone could either escape or ambush you, right? Correct. What was the plan for the officers to get past the gate? That was really left up to them. If you have to go over it, go over it. If you have to go around it, go around it. The responsibility of each individual member, they're given an assignment. If their assignment is to cover the rear of the residence, figure out how that happens. I showed you what's there, but to the best of your ability, to the best of your training, utilize it and figure out how to get to that location. Was there a plan if the gate was locked? I'm sure they formulated a plan, yes. You're sure they formulated it? Do you know what the plan was? No. All right, so there really wasn't a plan for the gate. You were just leaving it up to the officers who were part of that team that was going to breach the gate. Objection. That's argument. Overruled. You may answer. Can you repeat that again, please? You've indicated that you essentially left it to the officers who were part of the garage team to determine for themselves how to get past the gate into the garage. Is that a fair statement? Fair statement. The entry team began announcements, and at some point, the gate team began attempting to break through the gate to the backyard. The metal gate was attached to the home's foundation, and the officers struck it with a metal ram. Officer Ernesto Rios was part of the gate team. He stood behind the officers who held the pick and the ram. When Rios took the stand, Sullivan used the witness to help the jury understand a critical sequence that occurred in a matter of split seconds. Who did you hear making the announcements that morning? Which officer? David Sevison. Is he one of the guys who was with the entry team? Yes, I believe so. You didn't hear the entire announcement though, right? I did not. You just heard someone say Pomona PD, right? I believe it was Pomona Police Department. Okay. That's what you heard? Yes, sir. And you didn't hear the rest of it because the team had started working on the gate, right? That's incorrect, sir. I was focused on the window. There was a little bit of tunnel vision on the window. Now, do you recall being questioned by the detective about this issue? You recall the interview with the detectives, right? Yes. Okay. Now, when you were interviewed by the detectives in this case back on October 28, 2014, did you not tell them that you didn't hear the remainder of the announcements because, quote, at the same time, we started working on the gate, so I could hear a lot of thumping on the gate? Yes, but I didn't clarify. Earlier I said I could have clarified a couple of my statements. But that's what you told the detectives back on October 28, 2014, right? That's correct. You told the detective when he asked you, quote, did anyone else from Pomona say, quote, Pomona PD or SWAT or search warrant? You said, quote, I didn't hear a commotion, but I was focused. It was around the same time we started working on the gate, so I could hear a lot of thumping on the gate. Do you remember saying that to the detective? Yes, I do. 
Now, when you spoke to the detectives back there on October 28, 2014, were you being honest with them to the best of your ability? I was, sir, but I also had a lot of things in my mind because my partner had just been shot. Yeah, but you didn't tell them anything that you didn't believe was true at the time, right? That's correct. If Officer Rios only heard the beginning of the SWAT announcements before his team began thumping on that gate, it meant that the announcements may have also been partially inaudible for the inhabitants of the Martinez home. Remember Ingrid Tanissi's 911 call. There's been like a lot of yelling. It woke me up. There's people like yelling and pounding to get into the house. And remember what Sandra told the LASD detectives in the hours after the raid. So I'm laying down, I'm, you know, on my stomach laying down, and this dog just starts going wild, and I just hear David run out the room, and I'm like, what the hell's going on? He's, it's just the dog's barking. And then I hear this pounding and this boom, and just pounding and pounding. So I get up, and I'm like, what the hell's going on? In closing arguments, Brady Sullivan summarized the defense's case for the jury, a case founded on the assertion that David Martinez also did not hear the police announcements. The evidence in this case that David Martinez was lawfully defending himself and his family when he discharged his weapon is overwhelming. It's so abundantly clear that this is a classic case of lawful self-defense. And the prosecution's theory that he deliberately shot a police officer at point-blank range to promote himself with the Mongols is so preposterous and so insulting that I don't think that a fair-minded juror could reach any other conclusion than Mr. Martinez is not guilty in this case. Now, Mr. Garden says Use your common sense. I say, use your common sense. Does it make sense to you that a man who's got his entire family right there in the home, his parents are there, his sister is in the living room, his baby is in the bedroom, his younger son was in the bedroom, his girlfriend is in the bedroom, why would he pull out a gun and deliberately shoot a police officer? There's an army of police officers out there knowing that it is likely that they would come in and just kill everybody in the family in retaliation. That's crazy. And it completely defies common sense. But in these circumstances, there's even more reason to question the prosecution's motive theory. If David was this crazed Mongol out to kill police officers and advance his status with the Mongols, and he came up to the door with a shotgun that is loaded with 14 bullets. Why would he only fire one? Why would he surrender right away? If somebody was crazy enough to start shooting at the police at point-blank range, they wouldn't turn around and surrender and apologize. David Martinez's actions are the best evidence that he didn't do this because he was trying to advance himself with the Mongols. He did it because he was frightened to death when unknown people broke into his house and his parents and his father was standing there looking eyeball to eyeball with a rifle. You know what happened in this case, ladies and gentlemen? They can't accept that someone who is a Mongol 
belongs to the Mongol motorcycle group, could actually shoot a police officer during the execution of a search warrant and not be guilty of a crime. They can't really accept that the police officer's actions are part of the equation here. The police officer's mistakes, the tactical mistakes that were made by the Pomona Police Department set in motion the series of events in this case that resulted in this shooting. This break-in was not necessary. This shooting would not have happened but for the tactical mistakes of the Pomona Police. The prosecution is claiming that because there was some announcement made of some kind and the fact that the parents heard the announcement and opened the front door, well, How come Mr. Martinez didn't hear it then? Let's consider that. First of all, there is the obvious fact in this case. And I almost feel like I'm insulting your intelligence by pointing out that the parents are sleeping right there. Their heads three feet from the front door. Of course they heard the announcement. But Sandra and David, they're in the back bedrooms with the bedroom doors closed and they didn't hear the announcement. The house was shaking, and Sandra said it was pounding, pounding, pounding. Sandra testified that she didn't hear the announcements, only the pounding at the door. But what exactly did David experience during the SWAT operation? What did he hear? Why did he grab his shotgun, and what did he see in the dark? We'll find out when David Martinez takes the stand and tells his story. That's next time on Night Raid. I'll tell the that you're a You can find this entire Night Raid series wherever you get your podcasts. Night Raid is a production of Crime Story Media in partnership with E1 Entertainment. Our executive producer is Carrie Antholis. I'm Molly Miller, the host, producer, and writer of this episode. Associate producers are Brittany Bookbinder, Lexi Notabartolo, and Aaron Koronek. Audio editing by Chris Terracone. Rick Schnapp did our mix with additional audio editing by Tyler Newhouse. Music and sound design by Eldad Guetta, with Foley assistance by Elia Guetta, and scoring assistance by Nikki Hemmingson. Additional music by Half Gringa. Tonancina Sparza is our casting director. Voice actors in the episode were David Kelsey, Tonancina Sparza, Mario Ramos, Anthony Lombard. John O'Toole, Gilbert Reynoso, Carrie Antholis, Ellie Ramirez, Joshua Nicholas Moreno, David Hemmingson, and Vincent Umania. Special thanks to Sam Dillon. Our title track is Alimony by Half Gringa. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Night Raid. Thanks for listening. <laughs>